This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. All season long, we've been speaking with authors of chapters in our edited volume, The Political Science of the Middle East, which I edited along with Sean Yom and Jillian Schwedler. Today, we're delighted to talk to Lisa Anderson, a former dean of the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia University, former president of the American University of Cairo, and author of the conclusion uh, to our volume. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So it was a real pleasure for us to be able to uh, invite you to write the conclusion to this book, because unlike many of us authors, uh, you've been through this before. You've you've written reflections on the state of the field of Middle East political science. You've seen the highs and the lows. And so could you just tell us a little bit about how you feel now, having read these chapters and having this broad perspective on the evolution of our field? You know, how do you feel about the state of the art of Middle East political science? Well, in many respects, I feel more confident and optimistic than I have in a long time, which may seem counterintuitive in the sense that it's clearly not easy to work on the region or in the region as a political scientist. But um, the breadth of contributors, the number and quality of the people who are participating in this project um, could not have been put together 20 years ago. Um, there just wasn't a sort of community of people working collectively, if you will, on the region um, that there is now. And that's a testament to people like you, Mark, and to other people who have assiduously developed uh, younger scholars, encouraged them, made sure that they felt that there was an audience for their work, that there were people who cared about the political science of the region. Um, and I think in that sense, this has gotten to a kind of critical mass that's sustainable. So, you know, when I thought about the work that was being done on the Middle East and North Africa 20 or 30 years ago, I could pick out some really wonderful people. There were wonderful people. And those wonderful people are some of the people who are now the mentors of this larger group. Um, but there wasn't a sense of community about it. There wasn't a sense of uh, we, we, the group as a whole, and particularly the younger scholars can um, constitute a network that will move generations through this field now. So individuals so, might make it, but not as a collective. Exactly, exactly. And now I think there really is a sense of common purpose, if you will, among people who clearly disagree. That's what's so wonderful about it. So that it's people who disagree on methodologies, disagree on, you know, what's the most interesting thing to be working on in the region and so forth and so on, and yet understand themselves as part of a project. And, um, you know, the only, you know, they're clearly Americanists feel that way. Um, but within the discipline of political science, I don't think that certainly people who've worked on many area studies have not had that kind of sense. They've always felt a little bit at the margins of the discipline. And I think what's happened in at least Middle East studies is that it's may not be the center of the discipline, but there's such a strong sense of community that it's, you know who's gonna be reading your work and you know people will be encouraging other people outside of Middle East studies to read your work. And that really is new. And that really is very heartening. Mm -hmm. 
So looking at the the broad horizon, you know, I think back one of the touchstone works for me, certainly in graduate school, was uh, your comparative politics your comparative politics article on the state, and and this was one of those articles which kind of opened my eyes to the idea that we as Middle East scholars could actually speak to the core interests of the of comparative politics and of political science. And, uh, you know, we are now currently in the hopefully end stages of an edited volume on the state, and it's like a, a almost a 40-year uh, trajectory. Could you reflect a little bit on that and kind of that ongoing theoretical engagement over one of these core concepts? Well, I'm, I know that that particular article did have, did resonate in the, in the discipline to some extent, and certainly in the subfield of Middle East political science. Um, and that was very gratifying because clearly there was a moment when here was a idea, a concept that permitted people who worked in various parts of the world to have a conversation. Um, and I think that was very fruitful. Um, to tell you the truth, I wish people wouldn't assign it anymore. I know people still <laughs> assign it. And I think it is very dated. And it's not just dated in terms of, you know, the examples, because that's um, inevitable. But I also think it doesn't describe the region any longer. And I think there was a point, and this is really the point at which the article came out, there was a point after, say, you know, 30 years, 40 years, depending on when you want to um, date these things, where there had been a deliberate self-conscious effort at state building in the region. Um, and so you could write about how far along in that project various countries in the region were, um, to what extent um, the processes of those efforts you know, mirrored or diverged from European earlier efforts at state building or, you know, for that matter, other parts of the world and so forth. So it made sense to be talking about the state as sort of the critical institution and state building as the critical dynamic at that time. I don't think that was true for very long after that article came out. I think um the the sort of preoccupation of most of the regimes in the regions quickly i mean at that point pretty quickly pretty soon turned to regime stability even at the cost of continued institution building at the state level so by now you know as you point out 40 years later or so um I don't think that state building has been something that has preoccupied these mm -hmm. governments. I, and therefore, I think we ought to be spending more time in trying to figure out what has preoccupied them and what if what consequences that has on political organization, political incentives, political institutions, and so forth. So if I'm right that we turn from state building to sort of regime stability or re so forth, how has that been reflected in, for example, the growth of sectarian politics, regimes picking their constituents in ways that are not about the state and not about state building at all? 
So I think, you know, one of the reasons why I have enjoyed working with you on the on this sort of revisiting the state volume is that I think it is somewhat overdue, actually, to be thinking about whether the state is as critical a lens through which to understand the politics as it once was. And this is partly, as we've discussed in the context of that book, um, partly after decades of neoliberal hostility to state building in some ways. So, you know, I'm glad that it it marked a moment, but it did mark a moment that is no longer the way the world works. And we, I would love to see new agendas developing. Um, somebody needs to sort of put down a stake in the same way and say, now we need to be thinking about something in a different sort of way. No, that's really interesting. Well, in terms of like these new agendas and new, you know, theoretical uh, focuses, um, you, you you read the 12 chapters of the book or 11 chapters of the book. And uh, what did you see emerging from that as some of like the major themes that are now preoccupying uh, this uh, Middle East political science collective? Well, fortunately, I do think whether as explicitly as what I just said or not, I think the state has receded to some extent as the focus of some of the more interesting research. So the question of the extent to which people just sort of assume it as kind of a background condition or actually critique it as um, a way of understanding the region, that people vary about. But by and large, I think people, a lot of the work on contentious politics, for example, um, doesn't start with what they're contending over, but starts with how the social organization of contention is born and developed and so forth. That's so if you look at, yeah, you, so if you look at a lot of the kinds of work that's being done, I just, I think, you know, we brought society back in in a constructive way, um, looking at, you know, the uh, contentious politics is pretty obvious, but so is migration and mobility questions that's you know crosses state boundaries in ways that problematize states in very useful um uh dynamics so i think that a lot of if you look at the the volume it it moves us away from what are debilitated states um sort of re-energizes us to look at how social formations produce politics um, ultimately, of course, it's it's a mutualism, and that shows up a lot in the book as well. Um, but the other thing that I've noticed in the book, and I've noticed is becoming more, it's hard to capture, but people are moving away from sort of typologizing. Um, you know, as you know, for years and years and years, we were trying to figure out whether a regime was democratic or autocratic or what kind it was and hybrid regimes and so forth and so on. And people have realized that that's pretty much a dead end and that it's much more productive to think about particular practices and not say this is authoritarian or this is democratic so much as how does this work? How do governments um, develop constituencies? How do they interact with constituencies? Um, how do they 
you know, is it patron client kind of old kinds of things? How are the new media and digital technologies permitting governments to interact with constituencies outside the territory of the, you know? So thinking about practices, how militaries have moved from, you know, being the monopoly of the legitimate use of force to the biggest business enterprise. I mean, these kinds of questions aren't typologies. They're not, you know, what category is this? It's much more, how does politics actually work? And I think that's enormously fruitful. I think that is consistent with, and in some ways leading some of the work that's being done elsewhere in political science. That, you know, static typology kind of political science is just seems very 20th century and we're past that. So I think that's really fun and interesting. One, one thing which emerged organically uh, from many of the chapters, we certainly didn't give them a brief to write it this way, but it emerged organically was this notion that history matters um, and that uh, we shouldn't get caught up in you know the novelty of the moment, which of course aligns very well with the way you've always done research. Um, is, this what, is this what you wanted when you wanted to bring history back in? Yes, I mean, I'm really quite, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that I'm modestly proud of is that when I, you know, when foreign affairs asked me to write something on what was going on in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya in the spring of 2019, I started that by saying, you know, if you don't know what happened 100 years ago, you're not going to understand what's happening now. And to tell you the truth, the very, you know, sort of broad brushstroke uh descriptions that I had of those three polities and what I thought was likely to happen turned out to be pretty close. If you didn't know that there were important, powerful unions in Tunisia, if you didn't know the military was important in Egypt, if you didn't know that, you know, Libya was stitched together in a particular way that nobody ever really was happy with, you're not going to understand what's going on. So I think that that I was pleased by the reception of, and I think it was useful for people to see how inadequate the sort of wheel in, we've done democratic transitions in Latin America, so we know what's going to happen in Egypt. Um, and to see, actually, unless you knew something about Egypt, you really weren't going to understand what the dynamics were. So it's partly a... Um, you know, uh, uh, move away from the sort of we can compare cross regionally about everything we want to and uh, that that's really going to explain everything to. Uh, well, it certainly didn't help when we were trying to figure out what was going on in the uprisings. Um, no, this wasn't, you know, the uh, post-communist revolutions. No, it wasn't the transitions in Latin America. No, it wasn't, you know, 1848. It was what was happening there. So I think that's part, honestly, I think that's also part of what has strengthened the sense of the value that Middle East political scientists contribute to the rest of the world is they do know the history, they do know the dynamics, they knew, do know the variety in this region. And that's the other thing that's sort of been satisfying is people are beginning to realize there are all different kinds of countries here. Mm -hmm. uh, they may all look autocratic to you, but they run in very different ways. And so if you want to understand the politics, you have to understand why 
you know, if you look across North Africa, I've always loved this. Look at how different Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia and Libya and Egypt are in terms of, you know, almost any dimension of politics you can think of. You know, you have a monarchy, you have whatever Gaddafi was for a long time, and now you have a civil war. You have, you know, a very powerful military regime in Egypt. You have a clearly less powerful um, auto civilian autocracy in, in Tunisia. I mean, it's these are places which give us opportunities to really illustrate the uh, not simply how varied the politics are, but but you know what are the sort of dynamics we really ought to be looking at? Just labeling them just didn't tell us anything. I think so. The- I think there are you know there's lots there um, that I think we have now been able we collectively have now been able to contribute to a larger conversation and and this business of thinking about practices rather than you know just yeah typological labels i think is part of what what's happening that's very fruitful i think one other part of that is um you know it's not just the typologies it's also like i would say i think in my chapter i called it the premature coding of cases where it's like, okay, Egypt is a success and Bahrain is a failure. Oh, wait, now Egypt's not a success anymore. And it's like right. putting a label on it in real time, I think was probably not the most constructive um, way to go. But, but, but we've moved, is, but we've mean, moved well yeah. beyond that now, I think. Well, exactly. And I remember you know, years and years ago debating with somebody about whether what you could call, whether Morocco, because it had elections for parliament, was a democracy. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, I just can't. No, it's not a democracy. And I don't. So the fact that it has elections is interesting. The fact that these elections are contested by different parties is interesting. Morocco is not a democracy. And if you code it that way, you're going to get it wrong. And you're going to get all the comparisons that you do on that basis wrong. So somehow, Somehow one of the, you're right. I mean, it is part of one of the benefits, if you will, to all of us in the um, uprisings is that it became clear that those sort of very simple, I can say, well, they're contested elections, so I'll put it over here. Um, So it's not just, was it a success or a failure, but what kind of success and failure is it um, that I think we're, we're really, and again, I think this volume begins to, really play with that much more nuanced, much more subtle, uh, much more sophisticated questions and um, perspective answers. One of one of my favorite of your articles uh, was published in Perspectives on Politics shortly after the uprisings uh, when you were still uh, at AUC and you were writing about kind of how the uprisings felt, you know, writing, being living in two worlds as an American academic, but also being in the middle of a revolution and seeing all these, you know, young people and your own faculty, your own students and all of this and the knowledge they were generating and comparing it to the knowledge that outside political scientists were um, were generating. And in the meantime, over the last couple of years, you've started this Remina project, which is about research ethics, but more broadly, I think it is about these kinds of forms of engagement between scholarship outside the region and scholarship from inside the region. 
And I wonder if you have any thoughts, um, you know, that maybe we maybe you could share about kind of those trends and kind of the rise of indigenous scholarship and how it's changing or not changing, as the case may be, um, our research community. Well, first of all, what it is, I'm still struck by how difficult it is when you're in the, you know, I'm a card carrying political scientist, a, you know, can't help it sort of sitting on my shoulder as the analyst trying to figure out what's going on, even in the midst of, uh, or perhaps particularly in the midst of contentious politics. And I was struck then, and I'm still struck by how difficult it is to understand what's going on while it's going on. So, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite anecdotes from that is that, you know, AUC reopened uh, several days after Mubarak stepped down, because of course the whole country had been closed. Um, and so on the first day when we were all back on the campuses, we had a university forum at <clears throat> I was reflecting as the president on what I can call the momentous events of the preceding several weeks. And one of the faculty leapt up and he said, why won't you call this a revolution? And I said, you know, took refuge in being a political scientist and said, well, you know, in my discipline, there's a technical meaning of revolution and I'm, you know, and so forth and so on. And it was a complete cop out. It was none of us knew what was going on. None of us knew what this was. Um, and to the people who had been in Tahrir Square, the faculty and students, clearly it felt like a revolution and one couldn't dispute that. But if you stepped away, how did you understand what was happening? And that happened over and over again of a kind of trying to think analytically about how to understand events as they happened. Um, and Monel Gobashi's book on the um, uprisings and so forth is a, is a very good conveying of the uncertainty of, you know, we look back now and say, well, we know what happened, but we certainly didn't know what happened, what was happening as it was happening. And we didn't know the implications and we didn't understand that the way we would subsequently describe this was contingency and all sorts of things like that. I think that for me was hugely um, educational. I, it just, it made me think differently about how one understands political events. In, and in some ways, I think in the United States, the sort of continuing debates about what January 6th meant um, and what that really is and so forth. There's a small scale version of the same kind of question of how do we really understand? And so, you know, so yes, it takes a hundred years before, you know, we know whether it's early enough to call it a revolution. Um, but I, so I think there, there is, and, and what's been useful about that is that I think a lot of the I don't mean to say complacent, but that's the word that comes to mind. Political science that sort of said, you know, we've pretty much nailed this democratic transition thing. We know how it works and we can take this show on the road. And there were a lot of very senior, very well-known democratic transition theorists who made an appearance in Tahrir Square and said they knew what was going to happen. And of course they were wrong. 
because they were actually Eastern Europeanists or Latin Americanists or whatever they were. So I think that sense of complacency is gone. I think it's gone in the area study. I think it's gone in the discipline to some extent. Um, and it has therefore privileged people who have the capacity to have a, a much more knowledgeable, sophisticated, nuanced sense of, you know, fingertip touch of the, so, ha so that means, of course, people who are working in the region, people who are daily confronting what it means to, you know, debate why there are, there is no public utilities in Lebanon anymore. Um, so I think it, in not deliberately, but I think it has empowered um, political scientists, particularly, but social scientists in general, who work in the region to be to to speak to a discipline that had really said, "Don't worry about it; we figured it out." And obviously, that wasn't true. And so now there is a much more interesting conversation. I guess one last question is looking ahead to the unfortunate person who's going to organize this volume 10 years from now, the, the next edition of this volume, you know, what do you see uh, in the kind of short, medium term future for our discipline? For better or for Well, more? I guess I, no, I'll play off what I was just saying. I yeah. think there is going to be partly thanks to, you know, digital technologies, partly thanks to a kind of humility on the part of American political scientists that is sort of new, but I think is um, genuine. Um, and partly because there is an increasing, I mean, it's a funny thing to say, because when you look at the region, it doesn't seem this is this is again why you don't want to look only at the polit the high politics of the regimes and so forth. But there's an increasingly um, complex network of institutions and relationships among political scientists or social science scientists in the region who are being who are adapting work that's being done outside the region and whose own work is being inserted to the work that's being done outside the region. So I actually think that this volume in 10 years is going to be edited by somebody who works in the region. It's going to be about political science. So I, one of the reasons I have any reason for optimism, and I really do, is that you know the, the global universalist aspiration of the social sciences, that there is science, has always been nonsense. They're very American, basically, a little bit Europe. But now you can imagine the time when, in fact, these conversations are genuinely global. That's going to take more than 10 years. It's going to take several iterations of the volume. But I certainly think we are at a point where the next 10 years is going to be a much more serious and, and profound engagement um, of work that's being done in the region and work that's being done outside the region. And that can only be good. Well, thanks. We've been speaking with Lisa Anderson.